You're listening to Talk Geek to Me News number 76, recorded for Wednesday, September 19th, 2012. You're listening to the Tech Only Hacker Public Radio Edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeektome.us. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek, Talk Geek to Me. Before starting on the technology roundup, I want to first note that an announcement has come in to TGTM offices that from the Debian development project that Tribbler a Python-based BitTorrent Internet TV application, which we've mentioned in our coverage of new and exciting BitTorrent clients uh, that we pick up glean mostly from torrentfreak.com, has been added to the Debian Unstable Archive. Bug fixing and its movement into a testing branch of the Debian repository would trigger a huge availability for end users for this interesting and innovative client. And now the tech roundup. From EFF.org by Hanny Fakuri, dated September 14, 2012. Update. New York judge tries to silence Twitter in its ongoing battle to protect user privacy. This morning, rather than face contempt charges, Twitter handed over the data requested by the government under seal to the New York Criminal Court. Twitter was faced with a terrible choice between giving ground on its fight for use of privacy or risk a potentially expensive contempt of court citation. According to reporters at the hearing, Judge Scarino said Friday that he will keep the record sealed at least until a September 21st hearing. Hopefully, this will give Twitter and Harris enough time to take this to a high-level court and make sure that this judge's dangerous decision gets a thorough review before it's too late. Twitter's ongoing battle to demand that law enforcement request sensitive user information with a search warrant rather than a subpoena has taken a strange and dangerous turn. An ill-advised order from the judge presiding over the case means that either Twitter must disclose data without a warrant or risk a potentially expensive contempt of court citation. Malcolm Harris is charged in a New York City criminal court with the trivial crime of disorderly conduct, which carries a maximum punishment of a $250 fine or 15 days in jail. In connection with an Occupy Wall Street protest on the Brooklyn Bridge in October of 2011, Prosecutors sent a subpoena to Twitter seeking three months' worth of information it had on Harris, including contacts, tweets, and IP address information Twitter stores when a person logs into the service and which can be used to link a user to a specific location. Harris challenged the subpoena, but New York City Judge Matthew Scarino, Jr. ruled that Harris had no standing to contest the subpoena because he didn't own his data. Twitter did. Thankfully, Twitter stepped up and challenged the subpoena itself, and together with the ACLU and Public Citizen, we supported Twitter with an amicus brief. Judge Scarino, however, denied Twitter's motion to squash and instead ordered it to turn over the information to the government. 
Twitter continued standing up for a use of privacy and appealed the order to the New York Appellate Court, and we continued to support them with another amicus brief. Unfortunately, Judge Scarino has now tried to stop Twitter's challenge to his order disclosing the information. First, he denied Twitter's request to delay disclosure until the case found its way through the appellate process. Then he threatened to hold Twitter in contempt of court if it didn't turn over the data to the government by Friday, September 14th. And to put further pressure on Twitter, it ordered it to disclose its earnings statements for the last two quarters in order to determine an appropriate fine. Of course, if Twitter were to disclose Harris's information to the DA, the privacy damage would be done. The government would likely argue that this moots the appeal and use that as a basis to prevent the appeals court from ruling on the important legal issues. Putting Twitter between a rock, turn the data over without a warrant, and a hard place be held in contempt of court and face a potentially expensive fine before the complicated legal issues at stake have been resolved by the appeals court is a miscarriage of justice. If Judge Scarino is worried that Twitter is making a mountain out of a molehill by continuing to press its challenge to the subpoena, the same has to be asked of the prosecutors who are using the misdemeanor disorderly conduct arrest that occurred more than a year ago as a pretense to obtain a wealth of information. The attempt to obtain this information from Twitter is to prove a point not even really contested, whether Harris was on the bridge during the protest. The case was shaping up to be a constitutional showdown on a contested and unclear area of the law. Judges much higher up the judicial chain have been wrestling with the complicated issues brought about by the explosion of information turned over to third parties. In her concurring opinion in United States versus Jones, Justice Sotomayor of the U.S. Supreme Court wrote that she, quote, would not assume that all information voluntarily disclosed to some member of the public for a limited purpose is, for that reason alone, disentitled to Fourth Amendment protection, unquote. If a Supreme Court justice is thinking about the issues here, why would a state trial court force Tritter into a position where it has to abandon its court case, seeking clarity, or risk a massive fine in deciding to pursue its appeal? Some have already questioned whether Judge Scarino is the right judge to pass on this landmark case. No matter what Twitter does, it will lose. At a time when companies need to feel empowered to stand up for user privacy, Judge Scarino's actions have made it difficult for Twitter to do that. We urge companies not to falter in the face of this setback and continue to fight for the users. From TorrentFreak.com, by Ernesto, dated September 13, 2012. And justice continues as mega-upload user data negotiations go bust. Almost nine months have passed since mega-upload servers were traded by the U.S. government, yet after all this time there is no agreement on how former users can retrieve their files. Meanwhile, mega-upload's 1,103 servers are gathering dust at Carpathia Hosting in the United States. Behind the scenes, representatives for Mega Upload have been negotiating with the Department of Justice and other parties to allow the site's former users to temporarily gain access to their files, but thus far without result. After initial negotiations failed earlier this year, one of Mega Upload's users lost patience and decided to take action. Helped by the EFF, small business owner Kyle Goodwin filed a motion demanding that the court find a workable solution for the return of his data and that of other former Mega Upload users. However, Judge Liam O'Grady didn't want to take a decision on the issue, and during a July hearing he ordered the various parties to start negotiating again. 
Fast forward another two months and these negotiations have failed once more. This means that Mega Upload's user data is still in limbo, hoping to come to a solution The EFF saw no other option than to go back to Judge O'Grady. Negotiations went nowhere, which is why we went back to ask the judge again for the return of user data, EFF attorney Julie Samuels told Torrent Freak, but O'Grady appears to be taking his time, and weeks have now gone by without an update in the case. We're all waiting to hear from the judge. Until the court does something, our hands are unfortunately tied, Samuel says. According to Mega Upload's defense team, U.S. authorities are ultimately to blame for depriving former Mega Upload users from accessing their files. By taking offline the entire Mega Upload cloud storage site, the U.S. Attorney's Office has demonstrated that they favor the Hollywood oligopoly over innocent customers who lost access to their data, Mega Upload lawyer Ira Rothkin told Torrent Freak. We believe the government's aggressive conduct violates due process, Rothkin adds. Together with the EFF, Mega Upload is now hoping that Judge O'Grady will come up with a quick and workable solution for the possible return of user data. In addition, Mega Upload is hoping that the judge will dismiss the entire case against the cloud storage company. We are looking forward to the U.S. Federal Court ruling on the consumer data access issues and Mega Upload's motion to dismiss, says Rothkin. The greater the delay, the greater the injustice, Mega Uploads lawyer adds. Carpathia Hosting did not respond to our inquiries, but there is little doubt that they are in favor of a quick solution. The company currently pays $9,000 per day out of their own pockets to keep the Mega Upload servers intact. From TorrentFreak.com, Byron yesterday at September 12, 2012. No duty to secure Wi-Fi from BitTorrent Pirates, Judge Rules. BitTorrent Lawsuits have been dragging on for more than two years in the U.S. involving more than a quarter million alleged illicit file sharers. The copyright holders who start these cases generally provide nothing more than an IP address as evidence, then ask courts to grant a subpoena which allows them to request the personal details of the alleged offenders from their Internet providers. The problem with the scheme, however, is that the person who pays the internet bills may not be the person who pirated the movie or song in question. Several judges have noted that an IP address is not a person, much to the disappointment of copyright holders. To counter this argument, copyright holders have introduced the negligence theory, arguing that internet subscribers are liable when other people pirate files through their networks. This would allow copyright holders to sue people even when their targets haven't committed the offense. One of these cases was decided last week in favor of the Internet subscriber. The case was started by adult reader company AF Holdings, who sued an Internet account holder called Josh Hatfield in a California federal court. AF Holdings claimed that Hatfield had a duty to secure his Internet connection and that he breached that duty by failing to secure his Internet connection. As a result, AF Holdings argued that Hatfield was liable for the copyright infringements that were committed by an unknown person. Mr. Hatfield disagreed with this claim and argued that the copyright holder couldn't prove that people are obliged to secure their wireless networks to prevent piracy. In her verdict, Judge Phyllis Hamilton sided with the defendant. AF Holdings has not articulated any basis for imposing on Hatfield a legal duty to prevent the infringement of AF Holdings' copyright works, and the court is aware of none, Hamilton writes. To read the rest of this article, follow links in the show notes. From TechDirt.com, dated September 14, 2012, by Mike Masnick. 
House approves bill to spy on Americans by misrepresenting or lying about what's in the bill. We recently talked about how the House voted to approve the FISA Amendments Act, the FAA, by a pretty wide margin, and noted some of the more bizarre or inaccurate statements that representatives made in support of the renewal. Julian Sanchez has put together a nice summary of some of the more outrageous claims. The key here is that many reps seem to take the FISA Amendments Act at face value, that it would only be used to target foreigners in foreign lands, in other words, those with no Fourth Amendment protections. But, as Sanchez has pointed out repeatedly, former Deputy Attorney General David Chris more or less revealed the act is interpreted to mean that as long as the information they got might be useful in targeting foreigners in foreign lands, it's fair game. That means, contrary to the direct claims of many FAA supporters, the law is used to spy on Americans. Sanchez also highlights another sneaky interpretation. The law claims that it prohibits the interception of purely domestic communications, but there's an additional clause with one hell of a loophole, known at the time of acquisition. As Sanchez notes, you can drive quite a large truck through that loophole because if you're, say, scooping up email communications, you don't know at the time of acquisition if it's purely domestic, and therefore you're good to go. Basically, ignorance is bliss for the NSA. But these two massive loopholes and sketchy interpretations seem to be totally ignored by the congressional reps who spoke out most strongly in favor of renewing the FAA. The most common refrain from FAA supporters was that the law only concerned surveillance targeting foreigners in foreign lands, meaning it could not possibly affect the rights of Americans. Representative Trey Gowdy, in an impressive display of lung power, delivered a five-minute floor shout to this effect. This bill has nothing to do with Americans on American soil. Gowdy thundered, this bill doesn't implicate the Bill of Rights any more than it implicates any other part of our Constitution, unless you think that foreign nationals who are on foreign land fall within the protections of the United States Constitution. But Gowdy has to note that this is false, because the secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has already ruled on at least one occasion that surveillance authorized by the FAA did violate the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures. Similarly, we've seen how the NSA absolutely refuses to say how many Americans have been spied upon using these tools, claiming that it's impossible to know, or that it would violate their privacy to find out, seriously. But Sanchez notes that despite the NSA insisting it's impossible to know, that didn't stop representatives from claiming they just knew. Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers was slightly more equivocal, seemingly acknowledging that the law might permit surveillance of Americans, but that this would happen only very rarely. The mystery here is how he could possibly know that Senator Ron Wyden has repeatedly asked the NSA for a rough ballpark estimate of how many Americans, 100, 1,000, 100,000, have had their communications caught up in the agency's FAA dragnets. If Representative Rogers were correct, you'd expect the answer to be almost none, but instead the agency has repeatedly insisted that it is unable to provide even an approximate figure. Unless Representative Rogers somehow knows things about the NSA's databases that the NSA does not know, he can't have any real basis for this claim. And then there's Representative Dan Lundgren. Earlier we had noted that there were discussions during the hearings about the FAA he brushed off concerns about spying on Americans by saying he hadn't seen any such evidence, so it couldn't be true. 
Of course, he didn't bother to seek out any such evidence by asking the NSA to provide the data, and here he was even worse, making bizarre claims in support of expanding the FISA Amendments Act that seemed to go completely against reality. Finally, Representative Dan Lundgren suggested that the necessity of the FAA was demonstrated by the failures of intelligence leading up to 9-11. After all, the 9-11 Commission had again and again emphasized the central failure to connect the dots that would have revealed an imminent attack before it occurred. And to connect the dots, Lundgren asserted, intelligence agencies would need still more expansive power to first collect the dots. This is, in a way, the most breathtakingly erroneous statements heard during Wednesday's floor debates because it turns the 9-11 Commission's findings completely on their head. Their report conspicuously did not identify a lack of legal authority to conduct surveillance as a serious problem. If anything, the trouble was that agencies were drowning in information they lacked the capacity to analyze and put to use. Perversely, Lundgren trades on familiar phrases, connect the dots, to utterly invert the Commission's diagnosis of the causes of 9-11. So, if you're keeping track at home, the reasons the House approved this horrible bit of legislation with massive loopholes that allows the NSA to spy on us is because it can't be used to spy on us, even though it can. It bars the collection of domestic communication, except in nearly every case that it does not. It's barely been used on Americans, except that the NSA claims it's impossible to tell how many Americans it's been used on. And we need it to connect the dots on terrorism, even though it doesn't help connect the dots, but merely to provide even more dots, many of which will distract from the important dots. How do these people get elected? From TechDirt.com by Tim Cushing, demanding a student's Facebook password a violation of First Amendment rights, says Judge. For some strange reason, a large number of schools adhere to the notion that their students are not actually citizens of the United States and therefore not granted the same rights as the grown-ups. The rationale for the limitation of these rights usually involves the word safety, a word that has been abused in various forms to curtail rights of full-grown American citizens in other arenas. This isn't to say that, or even most scholars, are violating students' rights, but the sheer number of incidents reported isn't very comforting. Fortunately, some decisions are being handed down that should, if nothing else, provide precedent for those challenging administrative overreach. On September 6th, a decision was handed down in a suit brought against the Minnewaska Area School District in Minnesota, dealing with a 12-year-old student who was coerced into giving school officials the password to her Facebook account so they could search it for messages they deemed inappropriate. R.S was a 12-year-old student at Minnewaska Area Middle School. She posted a message to her Facebook page about an adult hall monitor at her school. I hate a Kathy person at school because Kathy was mean to me. The post was only accessible to her friends. One of her friends brought the post to the attention of the administration. The principal called R.S. into his office and told R.S. that he considered the message about Kathy to be impermissible bullying. As a result of the message, R.S. was required to apologize, given detention, and received a disciplinary notation in her records. R.S. was disciplined a second time when she expressed her chagrin that someone had told on her, I want to know who the fuck told on me. Fuck in the original. This time she was disciplined for insubordination and dangerous, harmful, and nuisance substances 
at articles. Venket Balasubremen has added his own punctuation to some of the more dubious or ridiculous statements made by school officials. First off is the charge of impermissible bullying. This is a permissible variety? A broad term used nearly as often by school administrators as disorderly conduct is used by cops. In essence, R.S. was punished for being a kid, i.e. not liking something that happened at school, complaining, be it rat out, and complaining about that, etc. The handling of this incident makes the school appear to be as vindictive and thin-skinned as the child they punished. This isn't the end of the story, however. The school also received a complaint from a parent that R.S. was discussing sexual topics with another student on the Internet, for whatever reason most likely stated as a concern for her safety. The school decided to pull R.S. from class and grill her about the particulars of these conversations. Apparently her answers weren't good enough, so three school counselors and a taser-armed cop interrogated her until she gave up her Facebook password. They proceeded to search her account, including private messages, for evidence of these conversations. Still not satisfied, they decided to search her private email messages. After this traumatizing and intrusive incident, R.S. decided to sue the school district for violating her constitutional rights. The court agreed with her on both claims. Block quote, First Amendment claims, the court has no trouble concluding that assuming the facts as alleged as true, School officials violated R.S.'s First Amendment rights. This court says that posts on social networks are protected unless they are true threats or are reasonably calculated to reach the school environment and pose safety risks or a risk of substantial disruption of the school environment. R.S.'s posts were not true threats. Even assuming the statements were reasonably calculated to reach the school audience, there was no possibility of disruption. Fourth Amendment claims. The court also says that the school officials violated R.S.'s Fourth Amendment rights to the extent they rummaged around in her Facebook page and her private email account. Private emails were like letters of other private conversations and subject to Fourth Amendment protections. Private Facebook messages are no different. There was no evidence that the officials tailored their search to minimize the intrusion. Even if they had, they had no underlying basis to search in the first place. And block quote. If the alleged facts are true, and the court takes care to point out that this is an if, the school will likely be writing out a settlement check. This decision, a response to the school's motion to dismiss, also allows the claims of invasion of privacy, although it does dismiss claims for intentional infliction of emotional distress. It doesn't seem like the school is debating the facts as presented, not if its argument is that R.S.'s violation of Facebook policy, she's 12 and you have to be 13 to sign up for an account, means she's entitled to fewer constitutional rights is any indication. Eric Goldman adds his own analysis, pointing out the inherent problem with most bullying policies and legislation. Quote, it's a good example of how administrators might use bullying label as a pretextual justification for punishment. The term bullying has way too much semantic ambiguity, but it should never stretch as far as calling another person mean. End quote. This is something administrators should keep in mind when crafting revamping school policies. They should also be reminded of this simple fact, as stated by Judge Michael Davis in his decision. Quote, for more than 40 years, the United States courts have recognized that students do not check their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse door, unquote. 
Safety does not trump rights, just as surely as policy does not trump, or at least shouldn't trump, common sense and proportionate response. Other headlines in the news? To read this article, follow link in the show notes. Where has that cloud server been? This is a story on Ennis Morris, formerly known as Black Ratchets of HPR, experience getting a cheap cloud server and finding a common security hole of old SSH certificates from an unknown user being in his root directory. Interesting reading for any SSH-using geek indeed. News from TechDirt.com, RawStory.com, and AllGov.com used under arranged permission. News from EFF.org and TorrentFreak.com used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution License. News from DemocracyNow.org and PeoplesWorld.org used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is dgtgtm, as in DeepGeek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Like 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.